In this episode of Vanishing Gradients, I'm speaking with Norma Padron about data science education and continuous learning for people working in healthcare, broadly construed, along with how we can think about the democratization of data science skills more generally. Norma is CEO of Empirical Lab, where her team's mission is to bridge work and training and empower healthcare teams to focus on what they care about most, patient care. In a word, Empirical Lab is a platform focused on peer learning and last mile training for healthcare teams. As you'll discover, Norma's background is fascinating. With a PhD in health policy and management from Yale University, a master's degree in economics from Duke University, among other things, and then working with multiple early stage digital health companies to accelerate their growth and scale, we're able to have a wide ranging conversation about how and where learning actually occur, particularly with respect to data science. We talk about how the worlds of economics and econometrics, including causal inference, can be used to make data science more robust and less fragile as a field, and why these disciplines are essential to both public and health policy. It was really invigorating to talk about the data skills gap that exists in organizations and how Norma's team at Empirical Lab is thinking about solving it in the health space using a three-tiered solution of content creation, a social layer, and an information discovery platform. All of this in service of a key question we're facing in this field. How do you get the right data skills, tools, and workflows in the hands of the people who need them when the space is evolving so quickly? Okay, so a bit of bookkeeping before we jump in. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter. At Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. It would also be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice. And if you like it, write us a review on iTunes and or anywhere else. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson, and welcome to Vanishing Gradients. Hey there, Norma, and welcome to the show. Hey, Hugo. How's it going? It is great over here. <laughs> I'm back in America for the first time in, in a long time, and it's summer. And my birthday's coming up. In, in Congratulations. Thank you. And it's exciting because growing up in Australia, I always had a winter birthday. Mm. But, so being in the Northern Hemisphere, I, I, I get a summer birthday. So everything's bright and sunny here in New York City. I love it. And you're in Austin, Texas at the moment? I am in hot and sunny Austin, Texas. Yes. Absolutely. So we're here to talk about a lot of great things you're working on at the moment, your new company, how we think about such things as continuous learning, reskilling, upskilling, you know, hopefully tens of millions of people with, with respect to the data skills that they need to do and do their jobs. Before that, though, I mean, you have a very rich history of work in... Um, economics and public health. So I want to dive into all of that. But before that, I'd, I'd kind of just like to know a bit about you. I mean, what what's your story? How'd you get into data? What's your interest in all of these things? And feel free to start, you know, as early as you'd like. <laughs> From the very beginning. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good question. I 
so it's I think like we are from we're not that old, but we are from a generation where like data really has gone through a lot of transformation. We we sort of today we, we kind of get it, you know, take it for granted. But so I think my first if I go back in memory, my first experience working with data was in college. I did my college in University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. And so I had several part-time jobs during college. I was a bank teller. I was in retail at the shopping mall. But one of my part-time jobs was as a research assistant for a professor that had run surveys. And she would give me the survey materials. And then I would, my job, well, part of my job was to put in all the data into Excel. And she would analyze that with Stata. And I don't remember what version of Stata was at the time, but one of the earliest kind of Stata versions, I guess. And that was my first incursion into data. So that's, I think that the two things probably that drew me into was how, you know, I I was always interested in like stats and probability. And I was an econ major, so I'd already taken like an econometrics class. And so I think that it was that sense of you could almost touch it, like the numbers all of a sudden, that survey would mean something. And my job was tiny, putting it into, you know, Excel cells to then be used into like a Stata data set and then be analyzed. But I could see that that was, to me, was exciting. So that was my very, I don't know if that's just sort of like as exciting as, you know, someone else's stories, but for me, yeah, Excel, putting data, survey data into Excel. I mean, I think not only is it, well, it's exciting for me. It's exciting for me though, because it's, it's, a, it's a pattern. It's a story that we hear time and time again. And I think, you know, people have different types of stories, but a lot of, a lot of our listeners, I, I think that will resonate with them. Yeah. You mentioned your interest or your work in economics and econometrics. Yeah. People who've listened to this podcast a bunch may, may recall that I've been somewhat opinionated about. I feel like there's a need to import more tools from econometrics into data science practice. And when I told you this some time ago, you were like, oh no, there are too many people like constantly (laughs) thinking, oh, we need to do this. So I think there's, you know, serious selection bias Mm -hmm. happening here. But I suppose I'd love to know a, a bit about your background in economics, econometrics, and how you think that plays into how you think about data science and how we all can more generally think about data science. Yeah. And I'll speak a little bit. It's interesting. So you probably have heard of uh, Scott Cunningham. He does a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, and I the, actually the get the chance. Type. Yeah, exactly. And I got the chance to meet him last night. And so I was just oh, sort of cool. telling my story. Yes. Uh, they're here in Austin for a conference. So I, I, I met with a number of fellow economists uh, yesterday and, and we had this very interesting conversation about the the lack of kind of scaling that econometrics has had an influence, right? Like we've had data science scale and infiltrate enterprise and we haven't had like causal inference, right? And we got discussing about why. And so I'll answer your question first and I'll draw a little bit from that conversation. But go on. Have we had, have we really seen data science scale? I mean, does it work? It's a provocative, yeah. So to be even more provocative, provocative hypothesis, a lot of data science work either confirms prior decisions of decision makers or is discarded because it doesn't confirm prior decisions of the highest paid person. I mean, I would argue that I don't see it that way. I would argue that the way I see it is the same way, you know, in economics, we speak a lot about economic intuition, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and what does that mean? It just means that, you know, after after years of kind of trying to understand sort of like what incentives, what motivates individuals, right? And so, in, and then in a, a simplistic, if you will, but still, I feel incredibly valuable framework trying to understand like what motivates suppliers, what motivates demand, what drive, you know, the drivers. And so, 
presumably, I think the assumption goes that you start developing an intuition and that intuition helps you understand and address problems. And the way at least that I will see where the value of, you know, economic thinking or economics frameworks is that then you start seeing like, well, okay, well, these are the types of, given this problem, these are the types of tools. This is where my problem, you know, the question should be kind of being a little bit deeper. And so if you're thinking about, you know, to your point about like enterprise decisions, then you'd look into, you know, can we actually measure, you know, this? And, you know, an economist will say, and that was a little bit of the conversation yesterday, an economist will say, well, could we establish some sort of like either experiment or a way at getting, you know, if X, then Y, a, a causal way, a causal connection more so than a correlation. And I think that where data science has probably succeeded in economics, not yet or not as much yet is that data science and again I, I take your point that it's not effectively deployed at most organizations that's actually my point I don't disagree with anything you've just said yeah that just isn't what I've seen in a lot of, and I've seen it work and yeah I think most of the times I've seen it work are where it's actually um productized in a, in a particular way so a silly example would be online experiments where you can go to mm-hmm. your growth manager or whatever it is and say hey look this is what it says. We need to do product B for this particular reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would argue that I think that there's there should be a way to productize how do you t- like learn or intuition and causal inference. I mean, I think that there's... And again, I think like one of the things that I like about the business world that I didn't think before that I would like as much is that actually it's pretty clear cut. Are you saving time or are you saving money? And I firmly believe that using some of the frameworks from economics, specifically causal inference you know, you could save time and money. And so I think that it has a commercial value. And so I think that is the question is, what is the the minimum viable set of information that we need to teach and productize? And so, and I don't mean this, that you'd go online and do sort of like, I've seen some of this kind of cool platforms around like A-B testing, right? Listen, again, the efficient and effective deployment of these new skills or these new tools, like that falls upon the organizations and the teams behind those organizations. I think that as a space of knowledge, capturing the knowledge or like not being so willing to productize it in some way because you think that people will not understand it, that's a little condescending. I mean, that's, you know. Now, again, there's pitfalls. Like you could argue, I actually don't know if there are studies on this, but that, you know, is it more costly to have a bad implementation of data science than no data attempt at data science at all? That's a valid question. I don't know the answer. But, you know, yeah, are you causing more harm than benefit? I would think that on net, that's not the case. I think that in net uh, is positive. It depends how far up the stack we go as well, right? So you can think about, I suppose, Monica Rigatti's data science hierarchy of needs, which has foundational telemetry, collecting data, that type of stuff, then storing in databases, having the correct metadata, understanding, then you start counting. Then you go all the way up the top to AI or deep learning or whatever's, whatever's happening up there. And I suppose there's some Pareto principle, right, whereby maybe for a lot of orgs, dashboards and lead scoring deliver 90% of the value that data science really can. And you don't require, you know, boosted trees to figure out your churn models or, or whatever it is. So I suppose my hypothesis isn't that it, it's, it's not valuable, but it's that um, figuring out where the value actually lies. And there are incentives to not do that as well, to do the newest deep learning, right? Mm, when yeah. <laughs> when maybe a dashboard is actually the most valuable thing for your org, right? There's this, you know, this marketing aspect of it, um, live action role playing of sorts, right? Well, I mean, I think that that's where like intuition 
matters a lot, right? Like, so having that sense of, you know, just pausing and asking the question, do we, do we need a dashboard or do we need like, I don't know, some sort of more sophisticated type of thing? And yeah, I mean, those are, those are teacher, I mean, what I, perhaps what frustrates me is that I get the sense that folks sometimes in industry or in academia, they sort of give up and say like, well, this is extremely complex, you know, you wouldn't understand kind of thing. <laughs> and so kind of give up a little bit, throw hands in the air and just like, ah, oh, it's a lost case. You know, only, only the few of us that get it, get it. And that really bothers me. It hasn't been my experience. It's, my experience has been that when you're working with someone, you know, I've been in organizations where I sit down and I'm like, okay, so tell me, how, what do you use? And they're like, well, let me pull up the spreadsheet. Like, this is what I do. All right, then from this spreadsheet, like what is the next thing that we can do? And what's the thing that next thing that we should do? And when you start spending time, I think people are actually, you know, they're, they understand problems deeply. They're the ones like embedded in the organizations. Um, this idea of spending some time developing intuitions, actually, those are behaviors that happen naturally in teams. And the question is, could it be improved? Could teams get smarter, smarter about the tools, the competencies, the types of data, you know, like approaches that they take? And I think the answer is yes. Like if we give them the time and the resources, I think people figure it out. So I'm an optimist yeah. on people. I'm, I'm kind of, again, it bothers me having come from so many years training in academia, which admittedly I was even myself of that idea. No, I have to study more and it has to be formal. And where's a certificate to get it in this way? And then you realize that's, that's one way of approaching learning and knowledge. That's certainly not the only way and not quite frankly, the most commercially viable, right? Like, you know, how many years of my life I spent studying and not making even a living wage. <laughs> and so, and I think the idea of accreditation, getting certificates, getting degrees, that type of stuff, it is incredibly important in a variety of ways. But once again, there's a kind of clash of incentives whereby to do well at college, I mean, I was very good. I've, um, I've got a very good long-term and spatial memory. So I, I was good at rote learning things for exams, which is not the type of learning that I think is necessarily productive for me in, in the world, for example. So I could do the exams, but maybe there were other things I couldn't do, right? So I want to move to a point where you and I can talk about how learning actually occurs to help people and organizations. But I also, I do want to hear your story in economics, particularly, I mean, some listeners may be like, oh, what's the connection between economics and econometrics and, cause, and causal inference? Well, I do want to get to healthcare first. Yeah, yeah. Why is... um. Causal inference so important. In the set of tools that you learn, I think that core to economic thinking is asking, you know, does X really cause Y? And and there again, I yesterday I I said it, I mentioned that at the dinner, but it shouldn't be that only one discipline or one field of knowledge has this sort of you know I don't know power or monopoly over causal inference. I don't think even that economists generally see it that way. I think that it's just a discipline. I mean, there's different disciplines approach different problems in different, you know, problems in different ways. And I think core to economic thinking is that question. You know, can we say that X, policy X causes Y? Mm. And they definitely as a discipline that has evolved. And I'm, listen, I'm not an economic historian, but the way I understand it is that through the 50s, 60s, 70s, as more and better way of, you know, instruments became available, both to measure, you know, get the data and measure it. They got more sophisticated in as a discipline economics um, in their way of attacking the question, you know, does X causes Y. And causal inference became core, I think, for on the applied, you know, applied empirical side for, for economics. And 
other sciences, again, like political science uses some of this. You could argue that some, I mean, I know of some folks in psychology that work as well using tools from, you know, in causal inference. So I think that it is a way, what, where I see it actually to be so powerful is that the intuition that students develop when they study economics really is almost like then causal, establishing causality is the goal. And it's, it's a non-negotiable goal to make statements like if we roll out this policy, this will happen. And I think that that level of rigor that is brought by this kind of framework and this way of thinking, I mean, it's incredibly valuable. And so, and then you can approach it as, again, I think that because I work in industry, I think that it's not that point estimates aren't needed. Like you always value that there's people really focusing on that. But then the goal, the way I see it, at least for me and the teams that I work with is in as much of rigor, using as much of rigorous framework as we can to understand the state of the world and how would it change if we do X, right? Could we make decisions, better decisions, right? And again, are you saving time or are you saving money? And I think the framework is really powerful. And I think that that's the intuition that you develop. And I don't want to be hate wavy around the value of getting into the exact point estimate. I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely someone that really loves and appreciates rigor. I think that there is that connecting the value of this rigorous framework of thinking for industry. And I don't see that sometimes often. I mean, you see it at the scale of sort of like the big companies, right? Like Microsoft will hire an economist or Uber will hire an economist and they embed this type of thinking through their products and services. And the question is like, is this scalable? Like, shouldn't we be doing it? Because we know that there's value. Like, shouldn't we be doing it at larger scales? Absolutely. And I do think I'm very interested in talking about the relationship of causal inference and health policy in particular with you. I I think just to double down on causal inference, I I wonder for people who want to find out more about causal inference, you mentioned Scott Cunningham and he has this wonderful mixtape. There's Mastering Metrics, which is a really nice book. But my question for you is it seems to me like there are two worlds of causal inference as well. There's from the economic side, then there's causal graphs a la la Pearl. So Mm. is there a way to marry these two or how do you think about... like these two different worlds. That's we're entering into some controversial, <laughs> stepping into yeah. controversial. Like, I don't see it as. So I would actually say that the two camps is: Are you good enough? Are, do you have the right instruments and the right measures and the right way of collecting the data? Right, because everything will hinge at the end of the day on that. And so even if you're going to say like when you go into and I love this idea of running as many natural experiments as possible and the world is full of them, right? Like this idea that there's exogenous variation that you can exploit and would allow you to understand that basically the counterfactual, how would the world would have been X or Y happened, right? And I think like that's a really powerful thinking. I see that there's a lot of question marks in actually a lot of the role of technology and like getting better instruments to better measure, to measure the data better. Uh, the way I see it, like that's a place where data scientists could contribute, like anyone, you know, could contribute. Like there's more to do in the instrumentation and measurement of the data. On the technical parts, I think you've been familiar with sort of this new literature revising, you know, how we use instrumental variables, how we use difference and difference analysis. Like the field goes through better and more sophisticated ways of, you know, doing evaluations. And so I think that that's another space where there's a lot to contribute. 
I'm mostly interested in, you know, this, but I'm mostly interested in like, well, the, the kind of the, so what, like, so when we, when we have better ways of measuring the data and when we have more sophisticated ways of doing evaluations and getting that causality, what are the applications that are the ones that could be and should be deployed more broadly? Like, in other words, could we democratize all of this amazing knowledge that is happening and opening up for bringing, um, for bringing value? Yeah. I appreciate that. And that's something I've always actually admired about you is you're, you of course, have a lot of theoretical knowledge, and but you're incredibly practical in a way that I, I, I sometimes get a bit lofty and out there and you're very grounded and practical, which brings me to thinking about health policy. So yeah. you did your PhD at Yale in thinking about health policy and management using economics. So what, what's the relationship of all of these how can economics help us think about health and policy? Actually, that's, I mean, I then I'll go back to sort of like where you were starting, which is like introducing myself a little bit better. Yeah. So I grew up in McAllen, Texas. It's a famously small town with some of the highest expenditures in healthcare and some of the highest rates of uninsured population. I did not have health insurance growing up. It was fairly common at that time. And, you know, I did not actually have health insurance until my early 20s. And so I don't know that I knew that I wanted to be in healthcare per se, but I did think that the application... So economics to me is actually really close to philosophy. I always kind of been fascinated that it offers you a way of, you know, listen, the world still sucks, but if you use economics frameworks, you at least understand it a little bit. It doesn't justify it, but at least you say like, okay, well, these are the incentives are so wrongly established in this space that this is why it's happening. And I think it helps you explain things. And among the things that I became really interested in, how economics could help explain were, you know, dynamics that happen in the healthcare industry. And both at the organization, like that on the industrial organization level of like, you know, competition and actual, you know, things around like pricing, but also at the like very individual micro behavior you know, activities as in like, you know, if you are already eligible for Medicaid, why are we not seeing highest rates of people enrolling? Like, why are people not taking the step? Well, there's frictions in how, you know, the enrollment process happens. And so that behavioral kind of like barriers or, yeah. So those type of things became really interesting to me really early on. I wish sometimes that I could get into that kind of like, what was Norma thinking of, you know, 1920? Uh, years of age. But I don't know. I mean, I think like on, the honest answer then is I was working three part-time jobs. Someone from the American Economic Association came over to my college and gave this session on the American Economic Association summer program. And it was, I mean, it sounded amazing. It was a full summer <laughs> of game theory, micro, macro, and math for econ. And so those were the four classes you'd take for two months. Everything was paid. It just sounded like heaven, you know? And so I sort of did that. That year was hosted at Duke University. My first time kind of living... I've lived now in so many cities and you know this, but back then it was my first time leaving my hometown, right? Like how crazy is that? And can I just ask you something? I, I can't imagine... What was diversity like in that type of program at that time? I mean, you're a Latina woman, and I can imagine yeah. most people doing that type of stuff are, are more along the lines of, of me, but I could be totally wrong. No, it's a minority summer program. It really is targeted. Like their call to action, their mission is to increase diversity in economic graduate programs. And I, you know, at the risk of sounding incredibly cheesy, like I just hadn't met people that were, you know, quote unquote, looked like me that had all these lofty dreams. My mom doesn't have a college degree. And so quite frankly, I thought, I'm going to college. That's awesome. Right. Like that, that was it. That was, I didn't have 
any more lofty expectations about what I could possibly be or do. And all of a sudden I'm spending the summer and I'm paying this like game theory classes with a bunch of kids that are like incredibly smart from all over the US. And they had a lot of these dreams. And I started thinking, well, maybe I could do this as well, right? Mm. I always enjoy it. I'm an only child as well. And so I really draw energy from being around people. And so the way of doing, you know, work in economics is like, you know, you get the problem set, then you get together in the afternoon, you solve the problem set, you, you know, and so it felt very team oriented. I just remember that summer changed my life. So the summer of 2006 really changed my life. I can run sort of like in my mind, the counterfactual. I think my life would have been told so different. I'm so grateful to the American Economic Association summer program forever and ever. But then, you know, so at Duke, I met Frank Sloan, who's a health economist. And I was just fascinated. Like he would work with doctors and he would work with industry people and he would work. And so I was very drawn into, I kind of knew I'm not going to be a medical doctor, you know, you know, yeah. And so, so I thought this is the closest, but how amazing it is that economists get to be basically peers in these settings. And so that became again, like a, a goal to attain. So I finished uh, the summer program, came back to, came back to Texas UTRGV and I spoke to my professors there and I was like, they told me I need to take a lot of econ classes, uh, excuse me, math classes, like give me all the math classes. So I took differential equations, linear optimization, dynamic optimization, real analysis. I was close to be a double major in math, but I would have had to stay like extra one semester or something. And so, but I took all of the advanced computer science and math classes I could. I finished up and then I went to Duke for a, I applied and I got in and I went to Duke for a master's. And then I became an RA for Frank, for Frank Sloan. And he was at the time doing a lot of behavioral stuff. And we co-authored a paper in actually beliefs and preferences and how these beliefs and preferences about your own longevity can impact how you adhere or not to diabetes recommended care. Right? Like this, I think like this is a very cool, powerful way of thinking that economists bring to the table, which is actually your financial and health decisions will be driven by believe, what you believe to be true and what your preferences are, risk preferences. And I think that to me, that's almost even poetic, right? Like it's almost philosophical that economics tries to quantify how beliefs and preferences, which are something so personal, would impact your health and financial decisions. Mm. So honestly, I mean, I've never looked back in terms of, you know, that intersection of healthcare and economics. While I was at Duke, I, I was an RA, I was studying classes. I ended up taking a lot of the... Duke now has his master's in computational economics, which Charlie Becker has said that I was in some way, shape or form, the inspiration to launch that. Again, I kind of had this smell for it, the data and technology. Again, that remember, like I was telling you in causal inference, right? Like you can be really good at the method or you can be really good at the instrumentation. You can be good at both, but sort of like the instrument, like measurement better. Uh, and optimization was a thing that I was very interested in. Just, you know, I, I love taking those classes with the engineers. Uh, they were so hard, you know. I had friends. By the way, I just don't want to make it sound like I was a type A student. I was actually taking incredibly hard classes that I was absolutely not well suited to take. And I was struggling. And like, I would be always studying. My friends will tell me, why are you doing this? Seriously? Like, why are you taking this crazy hard classes? Like, why are you not taking, at least balance it out, the, you know, a few hard ones and, and 
And while at Duke, then I got a scholarship through the Rotary International Foundation Ambassadorial Scholar. Wow, what does what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I don't know if that scholarship is still around, but that scholarship basically sends people from different countries to different countries, right? So it's an ambassadorial type of role. You do work. You actually, you know, when you get to that country, you're a representative. So I was basically, in other words, representing the U.S. in Spain. Oh, that's right. You were in Barcelona, weren't you? I was in Barcelona. I was in yeah. Barcelona. I was at Pompeo Fabra. I did a master's in public health. And then while I was there, I was working for an economist. Pompeo Fabra has one of the best like economics schools. Mascolel was, was based there. And so um, it opened my eyes, actually. It was really humbling having had the training in economics and math. And at the time already, I think that there was this obsession, you know, to do pre-docs and a lot of math and a lot of like yep. econ was just kind of becoming this math obsessive kind of space. Like, do you have real analysis type of thing? And then humbled by epidemiology and biostats and odds ratios, you know, and I love that as well. I very different in some regards, very similar in some regards. Frankly, it did open, I think, my eyes to have a lot of respect for how different disciplines measure different things. Mm -hmm. And came back to the, so finished that master's in public health, came back to the U.S. and I went to Yale for a PhD in economics. And well, it, the program was and is in health policy and management, and you choose a track, and then you can take your track classes in the department where you choose it. So I took labor economics and public finance in the economics department, and then some of the other classes in the School of Public Health, and my dissertation had advisors from both the School of Public Health and uh, economics department. During my time at Yale, I did have this sort of like existential question, like, did I want to stay in academia or not? And I, ironically, even though I had pursued it for so long, or it felt so long at the time, it's been three, four years that I've been thinking I want to study a PhD, and then you finally get in the PHD. And- I was doing my postdoc at Yale, and I, I had several existential crises. Yeah. And one of them involved me leave, actually leaving a- academia. The other one involved me moving to n- New York. I mean, the, the suburban nightmare crushed the spirit w- within for me. Isn't it interesting? Like it's such a, but I mean, I was already in my mid twenties and I wasn't asking myself what type of environment do I like to work in? What's the type of, you know, lifestyle that I want to, and then this, these were questions that I, you know, at the time, at least I felt that, that if I asked them that I wasn't being grateful enough, that I wasn't being grateful for the big opportunities that I was being given. When I think that you should ask yourself, like, how do you thrive? Like, do you work working? Do you like working alone? Do you like working in teams? How does your day should look like? What makes you happy? And I, I just, you know, anyway, so during the PhD, I did go through this, like more existential questions. Like, is this a type of lifestyle? Like academia already was looking to me as I was enamored by the rigor, but I wasn't very attracted to the lifestyle. I wanted to know how to answer questions and I would love going to seminars. And like, if you've ever been into an econ seminar, I mean, they're fascinating. Interrupting each other every other slide, they're pushback, feels even a little bit aggressive for me, actually. That's, that's great. Like, I love it. You know, as long as it's respectful, I think that intellectual pushback is very powerful. It's very powerful as a, as a group, as a discipline to have it. So I was definitely enjoying that. But then going back to my desk alone and then working alone for many hours, having I don't know. I mean, just so anyway, the, the long story short of this is that during my time at Yale, I actually did work in different environments. I worked in in London, uh, the Nuffield Trust, which is a think tank. I did a short stint at the Brookings Institution one summer working for a professor that was actually a visitor, visiting researcher. And so took me there. And so I was, you know, I understood a little bit of how think tanks worked. 
And so that I, by the time I, I ended, I kind of had a sense or I wanted to kind of explore what would life be outside academia. Even though my first work was, my first job was very, you know, it was academic. I did have that curiosity and that inclination of like, you know, okay, I have all the skills, like what else could we do? Look, I'm so excited to get to Empirical <laughs> Lab, but I, but I know there's a, there's a bit bit of a tale yeah. in, in between there. So what, what happened next for you that led you to my, maybe... Tell your story with a view to what led you to what you're what you're doing now. I guess the moral of the story will be that there's always more to learn, right? And so I think so. I finished. And so and now more I, so now as I well, walk, right? More I mean, so now, more so now, more so now. And and disciplines like medicine, you know, obviously move at a super accelerated pace. And so I think that that's it's the convergence of both the data is getting better and faster, and there's more of it, and then disciplines are getting ever more good at what they're doing, but that requires more complexity and more knowledge. So finished a PhD. I ended up working in New York for a few years. I was a research scientist at the New York Academy of Medicine and assistant professor at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. I have to say that a couple of things that were very transformational for me was my colleagues now were doctors. And up to now, this is something that I actually feel really, really strong. Up to that point, I hadn't shadowed doctors in clinic. And I actually think that's a huge mistake or gap in training, you know, for, and I will say this, this is sort of like a hot take, but I don't think that anyone should call themselves a health economist that does any work or research, empirical research in the healthcare space without having worked inside hospitals for a little bit of time. Uh, and I mean, like, shadow someone in a clinic, do on, you know, rounds at night with someone, like, just, just, just actually being there, the type of decision making is just so much more complex than anyone could could make, and the stakes are just so. Whatever you say, it's like no, I have great data. <laughs> you don't understand the stakes until you're standing there and there's an interaction, and you don't understand what the data means mm. and represents and what it looks like on on the ground, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm firmly opposed to the sort of like this corollary professions trying to change how healthcare should operate without actually having worked in healthcare. Strongly, strongly opposed. But it was humbling because I didn't have that experience. And so my colleagues were fantastic and they were empathetic to this idiot that had a PhD from Yale and thought she knew it all. And they were like, do you want to come to clinic with me? Actually, like, let me show you how it looks. And I'm so glad that happened. Amazing. What an experience, yeah. opportunity. And humbling and like it really opened up my eyes. And then the other thing that was happening at the time, and this is in 2014, and you remember this well, data was actually data, right? Like big data was actually happening. I went from, you know, a dissertation that was probably like, oh, here's like 5 million observations to like, oh, this is, you know, like, I don't know, way more data, way more observations. And so that became fascinating. Data science was also becoming more democratized in some way. And I know that you think that is that that's both good and bad. To me, that was really good. I started attending meetups at night and I started just sort of like hanging out with people. I'm like, okay, I want to learn more about this. And they're like, oh, well, you have all these degrees. So yeah, I know nothing about this space. Let's learn. And so rolling up your sleeves and kind of realizing that there's this whole other space you need to learn about or you want to learn about. So that happened during 2014, 2015, 2016 for me. And I could see that data team. So two things. How do data teams and IT teams operate in health systems? They're generally shared services units. <laughs> so they're serving clinical 
kind of teams and business teams. And they have to produce the, you know, the latest kind of revenue reports, if you will, or coding and billing reports. They also have to produce outcomes and inequality metrics that they're tracking. And I started becoming really fascinated by this group of individuals that I thought actually were the core of the work that we were doing. Like if you're talking about redesigning service lines in postpartum care, geriatric mental health, this kind of more sophisticated type of work the systems the clinicians want to do. It's actually at the back end, there's a team that's doing the data queries, that's tracking the data, that is doing that implementation for that remote patient monitoring device or whatever it is. And those were the teams I was really interesting, interested on. I felt like that was the behind scenes that was driving the whole, the whole, the whole thing. So I left Academia fully in 2016, you know, as in like at least emotionally. I was probably more out than in for most of the time, but emotionally I was like, all right, we're doing this. We're, we're living, we're living any type of daddy to you, uh, email finally after 27 years. And, uh, I was in Philadelphia, at, uh, mainland health system, which is a very large non-academic medical system, uh, in Philadelphia and very successful who partnered at the time had just partnered with Thomas Jefferson to create the Delaware Valley accountable care organization, Delaware Valley ACL. Again, a lot of these initiatives of reassigning services of new payment models, they're all driven by data. And I was working in population health, which again, of course, there's a lot of imperatives to drive better connecting with patient populations and con- connecting with underserved populations. The first step is to know the data. And that's what my team and I were doing. And I, again, just never looked back. I was really fat. Like for what is worth, like anything that I knew, if it could be applied to that, that felt that it was having a small impact. And then after that, I worked at the American Hospital Association at the headquarters uh, in Chicago. I was senior director of applied research and data analytics. And so my data went from being social and economic and clinical and really understanding populations or clinical outcomes into being all about quality and performance. So the operations of hospitals, you know, like, are you reducing falls? Are you reducing near miss events? Are you reducing hospital heart infections? What is like the staffing ratios, like number of beds? We'd have even projects on with, you know, hospitals around like within the unit variation. So within a system, you'd have intensive care units, burn units, neonatal intensive care units, each of which has to be operating as a high reliability organization, meaning zero errors. Mm. That's a lot of training that's a lot of coordination, that's a lot of data. And I was in a position, an incredibly lucky position to work and understand how health systems across the U.S. were working, how difficult a problem it is and how impactful it is to have short staff situations in rural areas in the U.S. And unfortunately, we just have a lot of closures of hospitals. We have a lot of lack of staffing, uh, challenges around staffing in, in huge swaths of rural areas in the U.S. And some places, staff turnover is like over 30%. And so how can data and technology fill in wherever possible, right, and support the people? Because Increasingly, we ask healthcare providers to do so much more with less. This is before the pandemic. And so I became a little bit both excited about the power of technology and frustrated that technology wasn't happening as fast as possible in hospitals. I think that I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just have a profound respect. I know that hospitals are an easy target. People love to dislike them. I know the experience isn't great. Believe me, they know it and they are always trying to improve it. But I gained a lot of empathy of the people working, you know, and especially these teams, again, the teams you don't get to see, the teams that are like 
behind behind doors. You don't get to see them, but they do have a huge impact on the experience. So at the time, I was very interested in direct-to-consumer technologies, and I started seeing technology. I've been always a huge skeptic on everything that has to do with AI. <laughs> and so, but I started seeing this sort of remote patient monitoring, hospital at home, sensor devices that were coming into you know were coming online, and I'm like. You know, my mom had a big surgery around that time as well. And I was like, the, the experience sucked, as I think for many Americans. So I joined Anthem. So Anthem has a new venture group where they have an incubator and accelerator program. And so I joined that where I was there before launching my company for, for two years with early stage companies. And a lot of companies that I worked with over the years were in chronic disease management, diabetes, musculoskeletal, behavioral health, women's health. And it became really clear to me that one of the limiting functions for scaling these technologies, great technologies with impactful outcomes, was that you have to operationalize it on the ground. You have to train the people on the ground to say, how does that look like? And I think like one big question mark that I have is sort of like, why don't we see the adoption of digital, digitally enabled and virtual care in rural areas or underserved areas to be higher? For those people who don't don't know what Anthem is, Anthem's an insurer, right? Correct. It's a it's a it's a large national exactly it's a payer yep. with national presence. Yes. Okay, great. Yeah. So sorry, yep. State your your question again and then tell me sure. what, where your intuition led you. The adoption and and sort of scale of some of these emerging technologies is slow because folks on the ground, like, and by this, I mean the sort of the groups, the provider groups, the health systems, the organizations that are tasked with deploying and evaluating the solutions are just one, they're short. I mean, I told you already how they work, right? Generally, shared services units, understaffed, very stretched. Uh, and there's a lack of investment in kind of growing these teams and giving them the tools that they need to do their work better. When you ask kind of folks on these teams, like, can you show me a little bit about like how you work, like your interface, right? Even running queries, you know, like uh, all of this, you know, I think like there's a space, there's definitely a need. And I, I wanted to kind of create Empirical Lab to be the platform where teams that are tasked with doing this implementation, this advancing data and analytics within organ- healthcare organizations, it could be healthcare hospitals, it could be healthcare technology, healthcare across the ecosystem. Just we're staying in that vertical, but horizontally is any team that works with data and technology. And we wanted to sort of be the platform where they could have the behaviors. They could just you do the behaviors they already do, which is there is a true and genuine culture of learning in these teams. And so we wanted to be the platform for them. And so you founded a company relatively recently, right? Exactly, exactly. So I left my job. Yeah. So firstly, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, so I left my job to launch uh, Empirical Lab. I, it's been a, a question or an idea that I've been having for a long time, but then just sort of the stars aligned and... Floor, who is our head of engineering, and some of the other folks that are in the team, just sort of like it felt like it was the right time, and we could we could make the jump. And so that's really what was the the starting point. I have to say, like a lot of this has been really listening to you know. I worked in these teams that I'm trying to serve, but I don't take it for granted. We spend a lot of time talking to them and 
and learning more. So that's what we've been doing in the last few months. Can you just say explicitly again what the value prop to the teams is, what you're, what you're working on? We're a learning and knowledge management system platform for teams. Teams can do basically knowledge sharing, so peer learning, and they can share audio, video, and text, which is fully searchable, indexable, you know, and tagged to OKRs and KPIs. And so in project implementations, in sprints around, for example, like quality metrics. So every, like the types of, again, these teams do a lot of things. And so we understand what they do. We want to understand it better, what they do. And so we want to be the platform that if they have objectives around like, you know, specific digital health implementations, or they could have specific like project management, you know, sort of like sprints. They could also have like specific milestones around quality and performance metrics they are trying to improve. And so this is a platform to do knowledge sharing between the teams. It's all for the teams and by the teams. We help them as well. We think of content in sort of three different ways. The first layer is a type of content that is relatively static. Welcome to the team. Here are the tools that we use. These are this is a, this is our way of operating. That content probably needs to be changed every six months, every year. We hope you be the platform for that. We give you a lot of data. So we have a structure around content leaders and content creators, managers who get information and how this content is being used and, and feedback on that content. People can rate it, keep high fives, stars. And then the next layer is a social layer. And that's where we, that's our sweet spot. The social layer is that Hugo is really good in this like quality metrics and Norma is really good in population health. We're running this implementation around fall prevention for oncology patients after discharge. And so we're going to be working together and I'll lead the content knowledge in this specific part of the project and Hugo will lead it in the other. As content curators, we get data and information back. And then the next layer is content discovery. And we have some, some exciting kind of things in content that we're producing ourselves and we help organizations discover so that it meets their needs. This is incredibly niche, if you will, content, highly specialized that we're working with experts in both industry and academia to sort of bring, bring to fore faster. And why is this more important than it was 10 or 20 years ago? Well, you have a couple of, like at the, you have a couple of trends, you know, at the organization level ever so, like there, we have more organizations competing for similar talent, right? Like everyone is competing for more data analysts, clinical data analysts, business intelligence analysts. And so you really are, I mean, I think at an organizational level, specifically healthcare organizations are sometimes not in the best of positions because the complexity on top of this, that everyone's competing for the same talent, the complexity of working in healthcare organizations is, is large. And so if you're a data scientist that can work in company A or healthcare organization B, you know, you might just say, hey, listen, this is way too complex an environment. I don't necessarily need this complexity in my life. And so you may, you may think that that's not for you. So organizations in healthcare really do compete for talent and then talent, retaining talent, attracting and retaining talent in this specific data and analytics is, is a thing. It's a thing across the industry, you know, industries, but in the healthcare industry in particular. I think the second point is that the type of knowledge that we're interested on is the type of knowledge that would drive, would accelerate, quote unquote, emerging technologies that have struggled to be deployed because the knowledge is so ad hoc. Mm -hmm. I have a, a good colleague and friend, past colleague and friend in technology. And one of the things he mentioned was that one of the biggest line items in healthcare technology companies is customer success. And it's sort of like a cover, not, not a cover, but sort of like part of the customer success entire, uh, you know, means that this technology company send in on, you know, folks like 
on the ground to do training on how this new data can actually drive outcomes and improve KPIs. And they have to now scale that about like, you know, every digital health implementation you're trying to do would have to be spending a lot of money to do this. So now there's, and the time that it takes the teams to do, to actually run these implementations, right? And so I think that if the content for us, the way we think it is like, use it, reuse it, make teams more resilient. We understand that these are the, you know, in today's environment, I mean, I actually do think it's a good thing that folks change jobs and they look for better opportunities and better work environments. What this means is that teams need to be resilient, that when you lose Hugo and Hugo was the one person that knew how to do this quality check on the data, you know, some of that knowledge and intelligence remains in the team because we will welcome Hugo back in hopefully two, three years when he comes back if he wants to. But in the meantime, we need to onboard very rapidly this next person that's coming in. And I think that teams, especially in data and technology, should... There's a big vulnerability right now for how do we make these teams more resilient? I actually do think it's a good thing. Like if you don't like your job and you don't think this is the right environment for you, you should move. And if we're probably going to continue to see short tenures. And you do want some form of redundancy in teams, depending on the size and depending on what your business business needs are. I always think of there was, this may seem like a, a, a silly, trivial example, but there, there was a study of, I think, Brazilian ant colonies where like 20% of the ants just did nothing. <laughs> So the researchers removed the 20% that did nothing and came back a day later. And there was still 20% that did nothing. And they removed those and came back a day later. And there's still 20% that did nothing. And it's like, are these just lazy ants? And the answer, one hypothesis that, uh-huh. that I think is interesting is that the colony had redundancy built in. So if there, if there was some catastrophic, catastrophic event, like scientists taking it out, that they could actually function correctly. So some, this is some form of elasticity, right? Yeah, um, in, I love in a, that. In a collaboration effort, in a coordination effort. In an organization, right. Yeah, I mean, we do think of ourselves... One of the use cases that we recently were discussing was on... These are the types of teams that actually they do a lot of training service to the organization. And so they wanted to use our platform to train some of the clinical teams on how the data that they were using and the data structures and the data methodologies they were using were working. And I found that fascinating. I mean, we were thinking a lot of like internal peer learning to those data teams, but these teams do a lot of service for the organization and they want to train and onboard people into how they work and how their project is going. And like they see it as a collaborative tool. So listen, there's obviously a lot to learn that we are as an you know, early stage company going through. But this is a problem that also when I was on the manager side and deciding what to you know purchase for my team and or like, you know, are there good training, you know, out there? The answer almost always was like, let's do a lunch and learn, right? And so sometimes we'd bring consultants and like, hey, teach us about this or why don't we, you know, let's discuss this. And then consultants will leave. And unfortunately, you know, that slide deck will get lost or that video will get lost. And so we want to be the platform where like you can add this in a super easy, friendly way in the set and, you know, get value out of that. Amazing. I'm interested in a <laughs> Several things. I'm just trying to figure okay. out which which way my mind is, is is going. Whether you talked about the, I mean, implicitly discussed the the data analysts and data scientists labor market. Yeah. There's a huge amount of demand, not enough supply as far as I'm concerned. But I, I do wonder whether we want to create more data scientists and data analysts, or we want to train everyone who aren't data scientists and data analysts to have the data skills that help them do their mm-hmm. do their jobs? I presume the answer is somewhere in the middle, but I'm wondering what your thoughts on, should data science become like email? 
for example? I like to think a lot about what are collective, collective types of periods where we've achieved collective understanding and learning about technology. And so I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but when I was in high school, I had a typewriter and by the, when I started high school, and then by the time I ended high school, I had a computer. And so, you know, I'm sure there was a learning curve to use a computer, but I use my computer right now as like, you know, just, I, I don't even think about it. It's an extension of me. Mm. <laughs> and so I don't know. I am sure like there's probably, I don't know, cognitive psychologists that know this a little bit of at what points can we accelerate and achieve collective understanding of things. And I think this is where we started with the causal inference where I'm like, well, listen, sure, like the methodology can be really complex, but could we, could we democratize the intuition? So that we're asking the right questions and we know we sh- where we shouldn't compromise or actually what statements are more likely to be true versus less likely to be true. Yeah. And so, and I think when it comes to data and technology, like a lot of the value that there's still out there to be captured is where you commented, which is let's pause and ask the questions. What types of tools do we need? Right. Mm. And that's an incredible, like, I don't know that you need a PhD, you know, to ask those questions, but I do think that democratizing the types of insights and questions that that should be asked, that's the right way to starting. And then the next layer, going to your point around, listen, I don't, I see it as sort of like a, hopefully it's a pessimistic, optimistic way. I think the pessimistic part is that we, I mean, just on the numbers, we population replacement rates are really low in developed countries, right? And so I think that that's just, we should really think of the way that civilization solve problems have been with more humans and more technology, right? Since, since fire, <laughs> you either put a lot of humans to do one thing or you fear it all the technology. And I think obviously the balance is, is both. We're in a very dangerous situation, I think, where we just don't have enough humans. And so I, I actually do think of these problems as like, well, then, A, we should figure out how to live healthier, better lives. So that's first and foremost, a very important thing. We should keep the humans that we have alive and healthy and happy as, as much as possible. Yep. But then the use of technology does become a necessity, a, a really a survival. I mean, I speak about team resiliency and team organizational survival. And I do think that then the leveraging appropriately technologies and the human capital that you have and building it, thinking of what people bring to the table as that, as capital, right? Like, I think that that is, is going to make some organizations survive and some others they won't. And I love your statement about appropriate technologies. I mean, we can talk about, you know, certain forms of social media that are, are wonderful technologies in a lot of ways, but whether they're the appropriate technologies for this stage in our civilization, I think are really important questions. Yeah. I think I want to talk more about information within organizations, but I just, because I'm in New York and you mentioned typewriters, it just came to mind. I was chatting with my dad the other day about one of his favorite poets and a poet I like a lot. It's called Frank O'Hara. And he has a book of poetry called Lunch Poems. This is totally tangential, but I, I love it. Yeah, so I'm going to say he'd work in Midtown Manhattan and he would, um, at lunchtime, he'd stroll down Fifth Avenue and pop into typewriter shop, typewriter stores and write, write poems in the store to test out typewriters. And this book, Lunch Poems, comes from all the ones he wrote at lunch. I love it. And so something I found out the other day, my dad didn't know this either. He found it out recently. Supposedly, Frank O'Hara threw big parties as well. And at his parties, he'd be having conversations with his friends. And when he got inspired enough, he'd, be, he'd just step out for a second 
and go to the other side of the room and bring out a typewriter and write a poem. Right. Then come back. Yeah. So bring typewriters back. I am of two minds and how melancholic, how beneficial it is to be very melancholic of like technologies of the past, right? And I, you see my books there and I'm the type of person that would get the audiobook and the Kindle, but also the paper book because I like to type Absolutely. the book, right? Yeah, that's the thing. Like the most efficient types of technologies are the ones that integrate with behaviors that we're already doing. I think a lot about it. I think about someone was asking me like, oh, great. So you're like a past academic economist that worked in healthcare and data analytics, and now you're building a SaaS software company. And so I actually think that it's connected. Like I actually think that the my first and foremost goal is about like, the behaviors like technology should like accelerate and facilitate the behaviors that we want to accomplish. And so the core behavior that I'm interested in is I know for a fact that people that work in healthcare, generally speaking, whenever you ask them, they have a mission to make healthcare better. You know, we all have these very personal stories. And so and then the culture of learning, the culture of like getting there faster, doing more with less, this behavior is about knowledge sharing, about how did you do it? How, I mean, everyone understands that the stakes are really high. And so, yes, it's a SaaS company. I'm after, you know, just facilitating the behaviors that just like making it easier and better for them to do the behaviors they already do. This is really, really important. And I, I think. The third layer of what you're working on, content discovery, information discovery, is is so key now, particularly as we're in information overload zone. I mean, I don't know whether this is true or not, but there is a, there's, there's an argument that we haven't necessarily evolved to deal with the amount of information that splits our brains apart constantly these days. I always kind of half joke that I think um, Twitter could be a better place if you had to handwrite your tweet. Yeah. Before sending it, <laughs> a little friction would help. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That you know, you know, my product manager friends would call that pr- positive friction, of uh, of course. Yeah. But I am interested. What we want to do, essentially, there is so much information out there now. That's one of the reasons continuous learning, I think, is is incredibly important. There are several dimensions to it, but one of the biggest issues is getting the right information in the hands of the right people and increasing signal to noise, however we define what the signal is and what what the noise is. So maybe you could speak a bit about that in, in, in your line of work now. It's funny, I found this interview that I'd given in 2017 and they were, they were asking me about like, how did I imagine, you know, healthcare in 2030 would be. It's funny, like we're, we're close, we're getting close. We're not necessarily that. Yeah, we are. That, that I had predicted. One of the things that I said it was, and at the time I was working on research for opioid and the impact of opioids in hospitals and how can hospitals kind of work better, prevent, you know, in opioid overdose prevention. And, and I remember, so that answer that I gave at the time was something around the lines of like, you know, healthcare should be really hyper-local. These mm. problems are national problems as in like this is like at the state level or like they're you know we know the the structure the solutions will have to be hyper local where i'm going with this is like when it comes to knowledge and training once you pass a certain point like if you are already working at a hospital right then the solutions to the problems that you're going to face is good that you have that background but it's going to be really ad hoc it's going to be really according to your kind of historical context, the context in which you're operating, the funding your team has, 
the success of that other project that you just deployed or the failure. And so all of this is going to come into play into what is the relevant set of information you should have handy for doing the next thing. Yeah. And so I agree that content discovery is a huge problem. And I also think that we have more content than we need. And I know shade to other organizations, but when I was a manager and I was kind of in a position to procure content for my team, you know, training, L&D budget. Some of the ways as organizations advertise, they say, we have 25,000 hours in machine learning for healthcare. Mm. Well, hold on. My team doesn't have 25,000 hours on machine learning for healthcare, right? Like, what is the minimum set of information with the highest reliability, highest relevance that I need for procuring, you know, for my team? And that is a problem that is saves, again, kind of, we began kind of saying that one of the things that I love about business is like, you're either saving time or money. It's pretty clear. Like, if you don't, if you're not bringing value in those two ways, then you're not bringing value. Absolutely. And so that's a problem to be solved. That's definitely a problem we're paying a lot of attention. And and then connecting it with the hyperlocality. So, so then the question is like, yes, you know, even if we get you to the best practices for rolling out remote patient monitoring, fall prevention programs for oncology. Right. Mm. Just that sentence that I said, we're talking about like four different areas of expertise. Absolutely. So we'll bring you, we'll, we'll, we'll connect you with our content. But you know what? The application will still be hyperlocal. So you actually do need to share it and apply it within your team. And so that insight, it's something that I believe very firmly. You know, the company is called Empirical Lab because we're always willing to test everything. And I'm humble. Like a good economist. Like a good economist. So I'm humble enough to know that we don't know everything. We think a lot about design and bringing early clients into the sort of feedback loop that we need to improve. But that is the core insight that... Even, so, the first, so there is the challenge of content discovery, which is going to be incredibly niche, which if we accelerate the discovery of that and the access to that information, would accelerate the implementation of the data and technology, which is still has a huge bottleneck. Because I started telling you that some organizations are at a huge disadvantage already. Short-staffed, not getting enough training, under budget. Like There's a lot of challenges. So if we can facilitate that and make it cheaper and faster and better, again, that's great value. And then there's still the layer of that that implementation, that specific application to that organization will be local. We want to be the platform for that. Amazing. I'm interested in how you think about part of the challenge here or a challenge in this space in general of scaling SaaS companies is that there are all types of incentives to create kind of SaaS companies that try to serve more global or less local situations, right? There's always a push for that. And we've seen a lot of failure modes of that over the past 20 years, especially with big tech SaaS in in a lot of ways. So how do you think about the trade-offs between creating something that can serve a lot of people and and the local needs of communities and organizations? Well, one of the things that procurement mechanisms in healthcare have, which, you know, for better or worse, are pretty clear, is are you improving quality? Are you improving the patient experience? Are you reducing costs? <laughs> right. And so it's it's yeah. it's almost quote unquote simple and so incredibly difficult. Because then that's the bar. Are you reducing cost? Are you improving quality? And are you improving the patient experience? And if you have an answer for that, that's how procurement happens. That's how technology companies get to partner with healthcare organizations. That's how decisions get made, budgets get approved. Like this is how it happens. Now this is true not only in the US. This is true again, like I go back to, you know, we really do have an eye for the potential impact and benefit at an international level. Like remaining within the vertical of healthcare, which in itself is complex, but scaling across different countries. And so I think that 
that's how I see it. I also think that it answers your question about like incentive alignment, where we hold ourselves to the procurement standards that any other healthcare technology should within healthcare. First of all, like I'm a big proponent of that. Like I actually have experienced and seen firsthand, you know, bad actors in the technology ecosystem in healthcare that they'd go and sell a you know, black box algorithm. No one knows exactly what it does. No one knows exactly how it works. You know, it doesn't integrate with anything. And so, yeah, it's a high standard. It's definitely a difficult kind of standard, but it's a clear cut one. Are you saving time? Are you saving money? Are you saving, you know, improving quality? Are you improving the patient experience? I was presenting about Empirical Lab recently and someone said, you know, give me an example. And then I said, you know, my mom had a cancer scare we knew I started buying all of the I mean I'm a I'm a techie, right? Like I love gadgets and things. So I bought, you know, stuff for monitoring like her blood like her pressure and like cardiology and stuff like that. None of this was integrated in any shape or form with her provider. And if we it's perfectly valid that there's so much investment going on to digitally enabled in virtual care. Like it's perfectly valid. We need that investment there. If you need to reach scale, you need to look on the ground and you need to look at the teams that are tasked with operationalizing it. Mm. And that goes for you, like even using to the extent that it could be possible to use centralized, you know, electronic health records, to using new forms of billing and coding, to using, you know, to improving on quality metrics, to having, I mean, one of the arguments that I kind of have still with the space is that we don't necessarily have a lot of quality metrics on digital health, right? Like, um, in any patient, I can tell you like, okay, well, if there's a fall, you know, bad, bad behavior, like bad quality outcome there. In digital health, we haven't even established, we haven't even gotten really good to measure what quality means yeah. because we're not, because we, we're not even scaling them in the way we should. And so go to the teams that are tasked with doing this and empower them to do their work better. You know, again, like this, maybe it feels very personal because these are teams that I've worked in and I always, kind of felt that, you know, we needed more resources, that we needed better tools. And not because I worked in the space, I claim to understand it fully. There's so much more to learn. But I do think that it's a core sort of like existential program. Like whatever it is you're imagining healthcare of the future should be, you should invest in the teams that are tasked with doing it. Absolutely. And as you've made clear, I think like it is kind of one big space, but there are so many different subspaces and subspaces of expertise as well and different types of people with different bodies of knowledge that are all trying to work together. So facilitating that is incredibly important. I am interested in, you know, I think about data education a lot, probably a bit a bit too much, but what, what type of bar- paradigm shifts do you think are, are necessary now to make sure that people have the skills and, and tools they need in in terms yeah. of data. Listen, I love that question because we started with like me having too many degrees. And so one of the things that I think is a huge paradigm shift going back to, you know, we just, we're asking teams and, organiz- and organizations and teams within organizations to do so much more with less. The shift is learning on the job. Sounds simple and it should have been happening for, you know, a long time ago, but the shift is organizations taking it serious. And again, thinking of human capital as human capital in learning on the job. I just want to say, I love that one entirely over-educated human like yourself is saying that to someone who's oh, yeah. another entirely over-educated 
academic human who, but we've both left that world because of, for these reasons, right? Well, hopefully, you know, I do always question like the Dunning Kruger thing. Like, do I think that I'm smarter than I'm actually am? And I'm just too stupid to realize that I'm stupid. And so I, so hopefully maybe this overeducation was only worth it in that I realized that it wasn't enough. Right. Like, you know, like the, the key lesson after all of these degrees was like, Hey, you're not going to finish learning. Like, you know, no. and so, but learning on the job is something that I feel really, really strongly. I think that organizations can step in and actually, you know, really invest in this survey after survey comes out. That you ask most people on their jobs and they think that their jobs will be obsolete within five years. You ask them what type of perk they really want from their employer. And it isn't like that, like, I don't know, free yoga lesson a month. They want training. They want like, how can you make me the type of worker that will have a great job, you know, in the near future? And so that is the highest value that an employer is right now competing. We still have a tight labor market. My prediction is we'll continue to have a tight labor market investments that employers should be doing is really invest in this space. And so learning on the job is the biggest paradigm, like taking it seriously. It's not a nice add-on. It actually has an ROI. Let's measure that ROI. And it actually, you know, I like to say the last mile of training for the teams that we're working with will be the first mile of experience for patients and caregivers. Like I would have loved to have a lot of like remote vision monitoring for my mom how do I accelerate that? It isn't investing more in, you know, these remote devices because they already are pretty cool. Actually, it's investing in the teams behind operationalizing these tools. Mm. Humans, man, like that's where it is. And so the paradigm is for organizations to take it seriously and to understand. Technology will continue, quote unquote, haphazardly subsidizing some of this with their customer success line, you know, line budget. That's not really effective. That doesn't make teams resilient. That doesn't help organizations do better, and they should. So the paradigm is learning on the job. I, I was mentioning I'm on this jo- uh, micro-credentials board for the Rio Grande Valley. And you have community colleges, you know, you have universities interested in how do we prepare students quickly to be ready for their jobs, knowing that they'll there's going to be more of a cross-pollination, right? Like people go earlier into the job, they learn in the job, they know what they need to learn, go back to the academic environment, get more skills and do it, you know? And if we're going to be hopefully living longer lifespans, you know, thinking of learning as something that, again, sounds cheesy, but it is a lifelong lifelong thing. I um, I mean, learning on a job is so... And as someone who, you know, was in academia until my yeah. 30s, my early 30s, now it's my late 30s, wow. But my, I'm actually really excited about my early forties, mm-hmm. to be honest. But I, um, let me get this right. We put kids in school until 17 or 18, then, you know, put them in college, ideally for, for several years. Is there an argument that we should get people working with experience? Like, I'm not talking about child labor, clearly. Yeah. 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 But like, seriously, getting people doing, learning more on the job and learning about the world as opposed to getting people in classrooms facing one direction with a lecturer talking at them for 20-odd years, right? That It doesn't pass the sniff test for me anymore. I understand before we had internet technology and that type of stuff, it was useful, but... I'm not certain how, 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 these thing, how these trade-offs work. What are your thoughts? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I'm of two minds. I've got one thing. I think that we need more options. You know, we just need those options. And, but we need those options to be high-quality options. 
if you end up in a world where four-year college continues to be sort of like top of the pyramid in terms of value and everything else is lowest value, as le- at least perceived, then that's not an optimal, that's exacerbating some of the inequities we have today, right? Which by the way, I mean, I just want to underscore that the inequities don't often go in the way that they get portrayed. We have more women going and graduating to four-year college education than men. Mm -hmm. We have more women going into medical and law school and finishing than men. And so I think that the way that inequities are shaping and it will be kind of arriving, you know, in in the consciousness and the public consciousness in, in, I don't know, a decade, it's not the way, you know, we're not doing enough to sort of preventing the inequities that are already there. And so I do think that we need so that aside, I think that we hopefully would have options that are high value options where like if you want to go to a four-year college education, that's an option that has returns on that education. But if you want to go to a two-year associate's degree, which we have today, they're just not perceived as high value. Yeah. And then if you want to do micro-credentials, go into the job market and then come back. Like if we have more of a fluid like where these are options and viable and valuable options, I think that that would be a good world. I I continue to be a little bit worried that this might end up in sort of like just exacerbating inequity. We're like very wealthy individuals that already are in high earning trajectories end up in the four-year kind of education. Everyone else ends up in the non-four-year and sort of we end up sort of inadvertently just kind of making more inequity. These options and getting employers involved is one of the things that we speak a lot in this board for microcontrols, right? Like getting employers involved and um, ensuring that these options that pop up are high value and they are perceived as such. Listen, we all know that college is a signal, right? Why do we see people on Twitter and everywhere else saying like, drop out from Stanford? Well, is it needed that you, but, but what you're trying to say is you got in. Right? That's a signal. Yeah. And we know it and accept it that way. Well, how do we make other types, other forms of learning and training be signals as well? I don't have a problem that, I mean, if it's a reliable signal, it's, it's good. It's a good well, signal. And, the, and the question is, what are they signals of? Right. So, and an, an example from a very different space is, you know, I work in open source. And so people always talk, oh, how many GitHub stars is this? And other people are like, that doesn't signal anything. And of course, it doesn't signal number of users, but it signals potentially awareness, right? Which when you're building something open source, you want to want to consider that in a lot of respects. I also think college, these types of colleges, especially, you know, Ivy League colleges are signals for a lot of things. I also think a lot of the value that they result in are network effects as well. Well, but then how do we expand? So we started with my story, right? Like I went to University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. I graduated, and three years after, I started with a PhD at Yale. But what was the delta in between was doing a summer with the American Economics Association summer program. And so how do we have then? I mean, listen, I'm not... I told you, I'm a little bit of a you know, pessimist optimist. Like I, I can relate to that. I wish there was more access to better college education, but like let's just say that, you know, an access to free college, like whatever it is, like, you know, all of the rainbows and unicorns, I wish there were possible. But in today's world and environment, all right, if we're gonna end up with expensive colleges, difficult decisions, you know, I was working three part-time jobs, like difficult decisions that we're asking young people to make. How do we build the networks that will connect them then with high signal, high value opportunities? And how do we expand also at the top, this high value, high, you know, signal opportunities? 
And so should it always be a four-year education? Like, I don't know. I mean, I imagine today if some Fortune 30 companies will come out with their own training and education programs, those would be good signals. And I'm not saying that they should do it. I'm just sort of saying like we're not diversifying the type of like training that happens because we're also not connecting students and young people with more of this network. Like again, this powerful networks where they will get connected with research. And listen, they might also discover that's not what they want. And that's equally, you know, that's equally valuable. That they don't want to pursue a four-year education. I think we've touched on this in a variety of ways, but I do want to ask explicitly, how do you think about incentivizing the right type of learning. As I mentioned, I don't think exams are necessarily set the right incentives for for things to learn that are actually helpful. I, I think the idea of learning on the job, a very practical sense of learning, moves somewhat in, in the right direction. But how do we make sure that learning is actually happening? I mean, I think that I one way to approach the question is that you the set your perceived incentives are sometimes a function of what you think possible and probable. And so I'll go with something, right? If you, so I grew up, my mom doesn't have a college degree. I go to college. I, I, I've heard of college. That seems like a good attainable possibility and I probable because I got in, right? Mm. So it's possible and it's probable. And my incentives are to attain this goal that now seems, you know, possible and probable. The, First and foremost, again, like going on the young kind of like type of like you're starting off, you're 17, 18, you're trying to think like what types of skills should you get? Like what type of jobs do you want? I think that the biggest delta that we could do today, low cost, high value, is being more intentional about opening up the set of possibilities and increasing in as much as as, as possible the probabilities for success in learning, like what is it? I mean, the best way to incentivize someone is to say, hey, it's possible and probable that you do this. But some of them, they won't know. I have a friend that studied uh, paleontology and I fascinated because I don't even know that I knew what the word meant growing up. You know what I mean? It's, I didn't di- think it's it was dinosaur possible. science, right? Is that right? Yeah. And so I didn't know it was possible and I didn't know it was probable. Well, she happens to have an uncle that was this and that, right? And so the best, lowest, Cost highest value we can do is going to basically where young people are in high schools, even middle schools, and letting them know, hey, this is a set of possibilities. And how do we work together to increase the probability? And I think that's a really good incentive. People are pretty, you know, I understand that we're not rational all the time. People are pretty rational. The moment you say, hey, it is possible that you become a doctor and your earnings potential over your lifetime is going to be so much higher. And by the way, it is probable. Like if you take biology classes and you do this, it is, you're increasing your probability of this new possibility that we're opening, you know, that you're opening your eyes to that you have it. The most underserved areas, the, the sad reality is that it's not only that they're underserved today, is that we don't, we, we don't open the possibilities that they don't have to be underserved forever. Like if you go to a, like how powerful it was that I was sitting in a, you know, small classroom at UTRGV and someone from Duke came and say, well, actually it's possible that you could go and do this summer. Like someone magically figured out a grant through the National Science Foundation, you know, in the Federal Reserve, and it'll be all paid. So it's probable that if you get in, you could go. 
men, I again, biggest delta on the youth kind of side of things. I think this is the most powerful thing. It always is a shame and it's, it's enraging that we don't do more of like opening the possibilities and probabilities for young people. On the more on the potential, I mean, I think that actually is not that different, right? Like if you are in a job and you want to know how you're a junior analyst and how do you become a senior analyst, part of it is what you were saying, is a maze to navigate. What should I learn? When should I learn it? What is the value of this? If I take this kind of six-month bootcamp on SQL, like, does that help me or not? And again, expanding the possibilities and explaining what the probabilities are. So, you know, I'm a type of like, bring the information, make it transparent, uh, and then bring the networks. The most powerful thing, like I, right now I'm talking to investors, right? And so the, the most powerful thing that folks can do, friends of mine that have done, and I'm humbled that they've done it, is opening up their networks. And this doesn't mean that they're going to say yes, or they're going to invest in us or like, or partner with us in some way. But the most powerful thing I think is like someone that says, Hey, you know, I have two people within my network you should talk to. You know, and, and why don't we do again things like summer programs, like opportunities for learning on the job, networks, professional networks? You are part of this. They're not always all successful, and there's dangers in making them, unfortunately, gatekeepers, which we should always should be wary of. But possibilities and probabilities. I love it. So I'm interested if. If people are interested in finding out more about Empirical Lab or what, you, what you've been working on or ways to get involved, are you hiring or are there people who you think would be interested in speaking with you, how they can get in touch? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I appreciate it. So actually we are hiring. This summer we have three interns, which I'm super grateful. Two interns from Carnegie Mellon, one intern from Wharton. Awesome. We're doing some cool projects this summer with them. We have a lead product designer, head of engineering, and we bring in different people to work with us on data science um, and also in some of the uh, initial projects that we have with partners. We have a closed beta testing group with the Yale Biotech Club. Oh, cool. We have some, yes, we're live. And we're launching our uh, one of our main pilots in August with the health system in Philadelphia. So we have a lot of work to do. So definitely, if people want to get in touch, they can just email me at norma at empiricalab.com. Feel free Great. to put my email in there. Uh, they can also kind of connect with me. I will. I'll put in the show notes. Yeah. And also put your website and job listings in the show notes as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so folks on the uh, customer kind of relationship would be great. We're doing mm -hmm. actually right now working on our sales strategy and continue doing customer discovery. So um, lots of cool things. If anyone is curious or interested and or have feedback for me, I'd be super happy to hear from you. Amazing. And as you know, we have a lot of a lot of data interested people, data adjacent people who listen to the show. So I'm wondering if you just have a call to action, something you'd like to see people do more of or something along those lines. Yeah. Well, listen, I think that that problem is very prevalent in healthcare around like we have more knowledge that we're able, you know, there's hours and years to learn. And so I think that maybe the call to action is if there's other networks that I could be made aware of that folks are working on similar problems around like making content more meaningful and to advance sort of the work we do every day. And especially if it's a healthcare angle, I'd be super interested in hearing from them. So I do want to hear from people for, you know, social media, the Empirical Lab Twitter account, the Empirical mm. Lab Instagram account. So yes, appreciate always Hugo, your support and the community. You're, you always work in building community. And I think that that's, uh, you know, going back to the things that can be really helpful. Uh, building yeah. community. Well, 
I find it particularly easy when I get to talk with such inspiring humans as, as yourself, Norma. So thank, thank you, you so me. much for sharing your story and all the exciting things you're working on. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.